scripture this morning is from Second <coughs> Samuel chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanum, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanum, the son of Mahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console the him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanum, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanum took David's ser uh, servants and s shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain in Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Mekah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us not be, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a desert sent and met and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed all of the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel 
and became servants to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Let's pray. Father, your, your word is precious to us. We desire to be changed by it. We love what you're teaching. Father, continue to mold us and shape us into the people that you want us to be. We rejoice with what you're going to do here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so why in the world do we take a whole chapter of Scripture and we take the time on a Sunday morning for us to stand and hear an entire chapter of a battle? Anybody else ask the same question? Yeah, yeah, and you go like, seriously, I, I need to sit for this, 40,000 this and that and battles and mm. Well, it's still the Word of God, and it's there for a reason. And so as His people, we want to show respect to God because it is the Word of truth. And even if it's just a description of the battle or a battle or multiple battles, there is a purpose and a reason for that being in Scripture. And so, again, we want to show respect to God as He gave it to us, His Word, willingly. And to hear these words and to go, okay, God, why? Why have you put this in here? Why have you, why have you told us about this battle? And, and, and why do we need to hear this? There's a reason for it. So my hope is that then at the end of our time in this chapter that we'll walk away from this as God's people and go, hey, okay, I see this. This is challenging or this is encouraging or maybe both. Um, if you're an unbeliever or you're listening to this and you're an unbeliever, that you would hear the truth of God's word and his gospel and that you would believe. And that's ultimately what it is, to believe in Christ as your savior. So anyway, this is why we take the time every single week. Sometimes we do you know, if there's like 30 verses, maybe we'll cut it down to 20. Um, but yes, we're going to stand. And, um, and, and if you can't, I mean, like seriously, physically are unable to stand for that long, God understands you can have a seat. So don't make it sound like, you know, we're, we're going to discipline you if you stand, gosh darn it, or if you sit, gosh darn it. We're not, we're not going to do that because that's not the point. But we do, if we're able to, even if it means suffering a little bit, which we're going to get to in a bit, we're going to do that for the sake and, and honor of the Lord and His Word. So, that being said, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Okay, imagine with me that a friend of yours has passed away unexpectedly. So, you change your schedule, you take time off of work, and you go to the funeral to support and to comfort the family. But instead of welcoming your comfort... The family humiliates you in front of the entire gathering of mourners. This is the position in which David finds himself. He goes to show support and comfort and in turn is turned away. Nahash, the king of Ammon, was loyal and friendly to David. And when Nahash dies, David extends a hand of friendship to his son, Hanan, the newly anointed king. Amon was a nation that was ungodly, 
That means they did not worship Yahweh. Unbelieving, idol-worshiping, historical enemies of Israel. And yet David reaches out to them with kindness and mercy by sending his representatives to comfort the mourning Hanan. David was under absolutely no obligation to do such a thing, and yet he did. And he did it with good intentions. He did it with a caring and a loving heart. But in the end, it was all for naught because this new king of Ammon utterly rejects David. Hanan is advised by his own princes that David only sent these representatives to spy out Hanan's strengths in order to conquer the country of Ammon. Now, if we know the history of Israel, and we'll get into that just a, a little bit um, in a few minutes, if we understand the history of, of Israel, or maybe specifically David, David doesn't need spies to go find out how strong an army is or a country is. He's got God on his side. But convinced of David's wicked intentions, Hanan humiliates his representatives by cutting their beards and their robes. Now, I understand in our society, we may look down upon this, what I'm about to say, okay? So my hope is that you hear this, you don't hear the patriarchy, okay, or weaklings, but a man's beard, and I will say amen, amen to that, a man's beard was a sign of his manliness in that culture, his manhood, and to shave off one's beard purposely, like without their desire of having it shaved, is to insult the man's dignity, his respect, and his manhood. Now, we don't have that in our society. You can wear a beard or you not wear a beard. And you have your own opinions on that, right? Okay, whatever. In that culture, this is a sign of manhood. So to shave it off is a humiliation but to shave off only half their beard, that means the right half or the left half, is not to make them look silly, it's to insult them. But then to drive that insult home, Canaan cuts and removes the men's robes at the waist, exposing their private parts to public view. To do such a thing to the king's representatives is to do it to the king himself. So that's why I say David went and he was humiliated. Hanan's actions have put his nation in a very dangerous position because when David hears about this humiliation, the first thing he does is he goes to the men and he protects their dignity by telling them, stay in Jericho until your beard grows back. I'm assuming they get new robes once they get there. But grow your beards back. Gain back your manhood so that you can now enter into public, the public eye again. But then he turns his eye upon the Ammonites. And as theologian Richard Phillips writes, he says, an implicit state of war now existed between the Ammonites and David's realm. David's mercy to Hanan had been rejected in the most humiliating manner, and the Ammonites 
are about to face the consequences. Now, one would think at this point, again, if you were me, if I was God or I was David, let's say if I was David, if you were David and you were publicly humiliated, the first thing that I would do, and this probably exposes my heart, and I'm pretty sure most of you agree with this, if you had this power, you would gather your army and immediately march upon Ammon. But that's not what he does. Instead, it's Hanan who makes the first move. And his move reveals the unrepentance of his heart. When the Ammonites realize that they have become a stench to David, which is not a good thing. Okay, it's not like they didn't put their deodorant on that day. He despises them. He's, you ever smell something really bad and you make that face? Okay, that's what David is doing to the Ammonites. He sees what they've done. They don't send their own representatives to David to express their regret for their actions against him. They don't apologize. They don't remember even how the Lord had given David victory wherever he went. They don't recognize that all of David's enemies were either subject to him or had to make peace with him or be destroyed. Instead, they gather their own army and they hire Syrians to join them to create a massive army. And only then, only when he hears about this army, does David gather his own army together. Hanan's unrepentance, his stubborn unwillingness to admit his insulting rejection of David, the king of Israel, his mercy leads to war, and it's a war that Hanan will not win and cannot win. When Joab and the army arrive at the gates of the Ammonite capital, he sees the danger of their position. Now, I'm not a military guy, but I understand that having Ammonites at your front and Syrians in your rear is not a good thing. So to be surrounded by the enemy before the battle even begins is bad, <laughs> unless you're part of the airborne. Okay, that's their motto, right? Sorry, I had to throw that one out there. If you don't understand, you can talk to me later or talk to somebody who's got some military background. It's not a good thing to be surrounded before you even started to have a fight. But there isn't much Joab can do except for split his army in two, each half acting as a reserve for the other should the situation get worse than it already was. But Joab, seeing his situation, has some final words for his brother, Abishai, before the fighting starts. Can you imagine? You see, he's seeing this massive army surrounding him. What's he going to say? Well, the only thing he can say is, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So strictly by a number standpoint, the odds are stacked against Israel. But David and Israel didn't win a battle after battle because they were so cunning and mighty. Throughout its history, Israel's winning and losing battles depended not upon them, but upon the Lord, whether he was with them or whether he was against them. If the Lord is with Israel, they win spectacularly. If he's against Israel, they're defeated spectacularly. Joab understands this truth. 
And so he says, take courage, brother. Take courage, army. Let's fight for the Lord. Let's fight for the Lord's people. Win or lose, God's going to do what seems good to him. So he puts it all in God's hands. And what seemed like overwhelming odds, Joab's words point us, who are reading this, to Israel's true source of strength, the Lord. We've seen this over and over and over again throughout First and Second Samuel. It's the Lord who provides strength. It's the Lord who does what he desires. It's the Lord who put David on the throne. It's the Lord who put even Saul on the throne, but then removed Saul. So it's all in the hands of God. He, Joab, puts and reminds the army that they should put their trust in the Lord. And in the end, the Lord saw it as good for them to win the battle. And so then they go home. They've proven their point, and they go home. They've defeated this army, and they go back to their homes. But the Ammonites don't seem to learn their lesson. Instead of submitting to David, they compound their unrepentance by hiring another army. It's kind of like that child, right, who doubles down, right? Like, okay, you do this, you're going to get punished. No, I'm not. Okay, you're punished. Well, that stinks. I'm just going to do it again because I'm right and you're wrong. When David hears of this new army, he doesn't send Joab alone with, with Israel's army. He rides into battle with himself at the head. So it's almost like, it's almost like okay, I'm going to send my commanders out and we're going to take care of this. Oh, you didn't learn your lesson. Okay, fine, I'll go myself. It's like between the babysitter showing some punishment and discipline versus the father or mother walking in on the situation and saying, okay, fine, I'm going to take care of this. It's a very different type of authority. And once again, the Syrians are defeated with thousands killed, including their commander. And when they saw their defeat by Israel's hands, the, the Syrians sue for peace with, with David. They're afraid to come out anymore to aid the Ammonites. Like, we've done this a couple times already, and it has not turned out well for us. We're done. We're not going to support you anymore, Ammonites. And this final victory brings peace to Israel, whose enemies either make peace with them or run away from them. Everyone except for the Ammonites. The Ammonites, ever so stubborn, refuse to submit to David, and they find themselves standing alone against the might of the Lord and his anointed king. Now, all of this, this is a grand story of victory and David's faithfulness. Now, if you have your Bible, your Bible app, and you look at chapter 11, now comes the famous story. Oh, I don't use that story. The famous event which was a true historical event of David and Bathsheba. And if you know that, that narrative, you know that Joab and the army go out again, and who are they fighting? They're fighting the Ammonites once again. But David stays home. The story of David and Bathsheba, this might be putting a little dramatically, is the beginning of the end for David. It's the beginning of the end, but that's for next week. So like Israel, let's put it this way. We, we tend to put ourselves in, in, into stories in Scripture, right? Or um, 
we go, oh, hey, I'm David, right? We've talked, we've had conversations like that. David and Goliath, well, I'm David and I can fight anything, any giants in my life. No, we're not David. We're not the anointed king. So David is the anointed king. That would be Christ. He is the anointed king. We are Israel. We are God's people. The church is God's people. But then you have a third group here, the Ammonites and the Syrians. So who are they? Well, like Israel, as God's people today, we can tend to see ourselves in a war between two armies. We've got Christ as our head. We're the army of God. It's going to go on and off, and Dave's going to stand up a couple times. We're the army of God. Well, who's this second army? And we say, well, it's the world. You got the world versus the church, unbelievers versus believers, sinners versus the redeemed. But unlike the battle between Ammon and Israel, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. As God's people, as the church, as soldiers of the Lord, that's unpopular to say that, we are soldiers in an army. We do not, do not fight against the physical world. In other words, people. We fight in the spiritual world. So what do, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus Christ, the true anointed King of God's people, sends us, the church, his representatives, to an unbelieving world, to people, to show them his mercy. But like Hanan and the Ammonites, many in the world reject the king's representatives. They reject the church and their message, our message. And in doing so, they reject the king. They reject Christ. And when they realize that they have now become a stench in the nostril of the king, they continue in their unrepentance. Instead of retreating or laying down, Christ raises his army to stand and fight. Again, not with swords and guns, but with faithfulness and truth. That's what I mean. Spiritually, we are at war. As God's people, we should not be in a state of comfort. And what I mean by that is, well, I've used this and I've been accused of, you know, really wanting this for my retirement, laying in a hammock and drinking a margarita. Like, isn't that what we think? As Christians, like, I believe in God, and I go to church, and I strive to obey Him. I'm good. I'm good, because everything's going to be comfortable, and I could just lay back and just let God do what He wants. Now, again, I'm not a military guy, but I think if you're in an army and you're laying back in a hammock drinking a margarita in front of your sergeant, it ain't going to go very well for you. Why? Because when an army is in a state of war, everything counts. Every soldier counts. Every time, every situation, every moment is important, and they are at readiness always. That is who we are called to be as God's people, always ready for a fight. Not always going to look for one. That's not what I'm saying. But to realize that we are at war 
in the spiritual realm. We are at war, and so we must fight with spiritual weapons and with the armor that God gives to us. Now, if you've are if you're, if you got a church background, do you guys know where I'm going with this? Spiritual weapons, spiritual armor. No? Okay. Ephesians chapter 6. Turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps as I pull out my glasses and read Ephesians. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. This is Paul writing to believers. And this is what he says, finally. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, not your own. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And because of that, Because we're at war, we are in a battle against these cosmic powers, the spiritual realm, the spiritual world. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore. There's important stand. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put, it on, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. That would be this, which is why we read whole chapters of Scripture on Sunday morning. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Be ready, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He's saying that, Paul is saying that for himself. I think he's also saying it for us as his people, as God's people, for which I am an ambassador. Wherever heard that? Representative, emissary, in chains, that I may declare it boldly, that is the gospel, as I ought to speak. We who are the church of God are called to fight, not with guns, not with swords but with mercy and love, faithfulness and truth. We will have trouble in trials. Jesus tells us that you will have trouble in this world because the world, Satan, his minions, and unbelieving people. And why, do they, why are they enemies? They're enemies because they don't believe. But it's not them we're against, against the spiritual spiritual powers of darkness, they will take a stand against us as God's people. Because, remember, we're His representatives. We are His ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? They represent the one who sent them. 
And so if we're to come into the world, all guns blazing, if you get my drift, that is not representative of Christ. That also doesn't mean we lay down and we just say, oh, whatever. No, we stand for truth unflinchingly. And we stand it in it with love, not acceptance. Do we know the difference between those two things? I love my children, but I will never accept their sin. And I will never accept that it's okay for them to sin. And I will not celebrate their sin. I will love them and I will correct them in truth, God's truth, not my own. We are representatives of Christ to an unbelieving world. And if they hate Christ, they're going to hate us. Again, don't hear us versus them. Okay? It's really easy to go that direction, right? It's, it's not. How about I say it this way? If they hate us, it's because they hate our king. They refuse, or if they refuse, or when they refuse to repent of their sins against them, against Christ, not against us, many of them will fight tooth and nail against those of us who are part of the army of Christ. They will stand and fight. They will stand against the church. And so we should always remain faithful to and trust in God with all readiness. At the moment that we are challenged, the moment that we are asked to be able to proclaim ourselves as God's representatives, always remain faithful and trust in Him because the Lord will do what seems good to Him. Even if our lives should literally be taken, And that's not an over-exaggeration because if you look throughout history, there are many who are part of the church who came before us who have given their lives. They've experienced hatred. They have been persecuted and they have been killed. And should that happen to us, God will always do what is good and right in His sight. Rarely will it be in the way that we want. Rarely. All we can do as God's people is be like Joab, splitting our army to meet the enemy where they are, fighting with all of our might that we have and letting God do the rest. Be faithful and leave it in the hands of God. Sure, lives be taken then God sees that as good. And as my king, I trust him. I trust him. Because we know that even if our lives are taken, no matter what persecution comes our way, our final victory is in the hands of God. And we know and trust that he will do what seems right to him. So, let me ask these questions. Who do you represent in the eyes of an unbelieving world? That's, 
That's convicting. I mean, we're, not, we're not perfect as God's people. We're not. And that's kind of the point. Was it was the song we sang? It, when I look at myself, everything about me says that I should be rejected by God, but everything in him says that I'm accepted. Because it's not about my perfection. It's not about me being always right, ready to fight perfectly in every moment of our life. Now, that's what we should strive for, right? And, and as we mature in our faith, the hope is that we become more and more ready. We recognize the battle more and more. We aren't desiring to sit on a hammock and drink in a margarita, hoping that everything just turns out well. We're not perfect. Our God is perfect. And he uses imperfect people to reach an unbelieving world. So the question is, is do we, who do we represent? Do we represent us, the imperfect, sinful, selfish at times human being? Or do we strive in our lives to represent our king? And so here's the deeper question is, who is your king? Who is your king? How is your life as the church? If you say, I am a believer and I am part of the church of God, how is your life a witness to those around you that you belong to the king? You belong to Christ. Are you willing to obey your king even if it means doing something difficult or being uncomfortable? Maybe it means letting go of your stubbornness or your selfishness and saying, yeah, I don't want to. I don't see any reason for it. Yeah, I know God's word says this, but he'll forgive me. It's okay. What's the big deal? It's not that big of a deal. It is. It is a big deal. Are you willing to obey your king, even if it means doing something you don't want to? Are you willing to represent your king in ways that only the king will see? Are you willing to be humiliated for the sake of your king? To let go of your own desires and wants for the sake of Christ? Now, I always feel like at this moment I got to do a disclaimer. We're not talking that if you obey the king, then you'll be saved. <laughs> you obey the king because you are saved. In our weakness, in our sinfulness, he died for us. If we if we are part of the church, if we are part of the army of God, if we are part of His people, He died for us when we were the Ammonites. And He saved us. And He changed our hearts and we believed and we became His people. Are we willing to humiliate ourselves if need be even give our own lives, literally or figuratively, for
for the sake of the king who died for us while we hated him. That's, that's a hard question to answer truthfully to ourselves. And as a, as a child of God, as a part of his people, as a member of the church, not Elm Creek, but the church, universal church of all time, as his, as his son, as his daughter, asking that question and answering it correctly might be super convicting. but it's a good question to ask on a regular basis. Because let's be honest, if you're like me, you're going to have a bad day. I had a bad day yesterday, really bad day. And I let it affect me. And I had to repent of many things, including this morning when I got up and all of those feelings were still there. And I had to say, this ain't about you or me, God. This is about you. And I want to represent you well. Here I am preaching about being a representative no matter what. And in my own home, I tend to be a jerk at times to my wife and my kids because it didn't go the way I wanted to and I was an idiot for doing what I did. If you want to hear more details, I'll cry on your shoulder. And you'll say, that's so small, Mark. But to me, it was a big deal. Are you a witness for Christ to an unbelieving world? Now, we get the privilege today, and this is a joyful time, but I'm also wanting to use this, and I think God is using this. Okay, that sounded like I'm speaking for God. I am, but hopefully I am not the Lord, okay? But I feel, see, I don't want to use that word either. He is using this time that we're going to have with baptism to encourage us, but also to convict us. Can I say it that way? Does that make sense? Including myself. Okay? Betty. I've said this to her. I've said this to her family, and I'm going to say this to your face. Betty is a representative that you have no more excuses. You have no excuses. If you're standing in there, say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yes, but, or... And let's just take baptism. You're a believer in Christ. If you have to be baptized. And you say, I don't need to be baptized because of this, 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 and this. Betty is 88 years old. If you think you're too old to get baptized, she's not ashamed of that. Okay, I'm not demeaning. I, I love Betty. And if I could have the attitude and the unhurting body that you have with very little arthritis at 88, praise the Lord. 88 years old, and the Lord told her, you have not been fully obedient to me. You haven't been baptized. And Christ says, the most, one of the most famous passages in Scripture, where Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one of the core things of being part of the church. It doesn't save you. It does nothing to save you. It is an expression and a witness of that salvation. And so if you say, well, I'm 50 years old. I'm a little old to be baptized. Well, no, you're not. You're not. Well, I don't like getting in front of people. Neither does she. 
neither does she. Well, I'm just too stubborn. <laughs> and those are her words, not mine. So don't say like, Mark, you're a jerk. No, those are, and I asked her if I could say that, didn't I? Self-proclaimed stubborn person. Well, this is what I want to do, which we all are, have a part of in our, in our own personalities, right? We want to be stubborn. All of these things she exhibits, which, and we all do at times, and yet she is willing to let all of that go. Why? I, I didn't guilt her into this. Maybe somebody else tried to guilt her into this. But I, when we had conversation, I want to make sure, has anybody guilted you into taking this step? And the answer was no. Or at least if they tried, it didn't work. Because she wants to be obedient to her king. She's willing to let go of her age. She's willing to let go of the fact that she has getting cold water because I messed up. She, she's letting, willing to let go of her own stubbornness. She's willing to let go of the fact that she's really uncomfortable standing in front of people and being in front of people and being the center of attention, to say, to say it in one way. She's willing to let go all of that in order to be a witness to you that she belongs to the king. And if you don't know Betty, or if you're not a believer, she's the same kind of witness to you. She believes in Christ. She is saved by Christ. And even at 88 years old, she wants to obey her king and be his representative to us and to an unbelieving world. That's what baptism is about. Now, I'm going to get to that in a second. But I want to, this last song that we're about to sing, let it soak in. Let's worship and praise God. Let's pray for Betty and, and praise God that she's willing to take this step here in a few minutes. This is a time to worship God and to praise His name as we see an obedient woman coming before you and saying, I love the king. And I pray it is encouraging. And if need be, I pray it is convicting. But let's stand and we'll sing our final song. And then we get to worship the Lord together through baptism.